Hey, and welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. We are in a series on the book of Revelation where we are seeking what God's word says to us as the church right now. Each week of the series, we will go through large portions of scripture. So if you go to scottshill.org slash revelation, you will be provided a reader's guide to keep you on track with the passages from each week's sermon. We hope this series blesses you as we look forward to the imminent return of Christ. Well, good morning. Welcome to Scotts Hill. Those of you joining us online, thank you for joining with us. We do want to remind you that um, we have two weeks left of our series in the book of Revelation today and next Sunday. And then we're going to do a two-week series on Christmas called Before and After. We're going to do one of those before Christmas and one after Christmas, hence before and after. But right in the middle of that, we're going to do what we do every year, which is a Christmas Eve service here at Scotts Hill. We're going to do that at 3.30 in the afternoon and at 5 o'clock on Christmas Eve. So if you want to be a part of this service, and believe me, you do, you need to go online and make sure you register. We opened up registration this week, and it's already half full. So um, there are about 650 seats that we can get in each of these, maybe a little bit more if we can finagle some seats and things like that. But you want to make sure you register this week for the Christmas Eve service. So I want to give you that reminder. And those of you watching us online would love for you to come and join us live in a Christmas Eve celebration as we celebrate the greatest gift, God's indescribable gift that he has given to us in his son, Jesus Christ. But as I said, we are coming down to the end of our study in the book of Revelation. In fact, today we're going to end up our study today in the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. But um, we're also going to conclude it next week with um, a very important time in the life of our church because what we're going to look at is what do we do until he comes and we're going to have the Lord's Supper together next week. So it's going to be a wonderful way to end out our study on the book of Revelation. Now, I started this study back in September, and I said to you, quite honestly, I was a bit nervous about it. I was, I was a bit queasy about it. And it wasn't because of the contents in the book. It was because of all the different interpretations that people bring when they start talking about the book of Revelation. But this series has been so good for me personally. It has been so good because, and I, and I hope that it's been a good study for you as well, as we've been focusing at the key major emphasis of the book of Revelation, and it's a reminder that we don't have to be afraid of the future. We don't have to be afraid at all because God is in charge. God knows the end from the beginning. God is working out all things according to the counsel of his good pleasure, and that we don't have to be afraid because we have the Spirit of God. We're the redeemed people of God. We have the Word of God. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are called to storm the very gates of hell with the good news of Jesus Christ. And as I've been studying this, there are a couple of things that really have come out to me. One of the things was the urgency of sharing the gospel with my neighbors, sharing the gospel with people who don't know Christ. Because the reality is every one of us is going to stand before God one day. We're going to give an account of our lives, and there is going to be an eternity before us, either separated from God in a place called hell, which is real, or in the very glories of his presence in a place called heaven that we're going to look at today. And so as I have been going through the book of Revelation, it has really encouraged me to be able to be more bold and more enduring with the message of the gospel. I hope it has challenged you in that as well. But let me tell you another thing that's come to my mind. 
I'm coming down towards the, probably the last phase of my ministry. I've turned 62 years old this year, and I look in the mirror, and I start seeing my dad more and more. And, uh, and so I, I'm getting older, and I know that I'm coming into the last phase of my ministry. And here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to coast into retirement. I don't want to coast into eternity. I want to be a threat to the kingdom of darkness. I want to be a threat against the principalities and the rulers of this world. I want to be able to be empowered by the Spirit of God, armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that the enemy and the kingdom of darkness would be threatened not only by me, but by those people who are members of this church and who are willing to carry the gospel into that. You remember when we were in the book of Acts in chapter 19, we talked about the sons of Siva? There was those seven sons that were itinerant exorcists. They were going around casting out demons and they tried to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And the demon said, Jesus, I know Paul, I know, but I don't know who you are. And he jumped on them and beat them all up. Let me tell you what my hope is. My hope is that when we encounter such things, demons and demonic powers will not say to us, Jesus, I know Paul, I know, but I don't know you. I would love for them to be able to say, Jesus, I know Paul, I know, and the people of Scotts Hill, I know well, because we are in the fight and we are in the battle until he comes. And I want to invite you into that journey with me that we do not coast into eternity but we are faithful servants of the Lord Jesus as we keep moving forward for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's do that. Well, we're going to be looking in Revelation 21 and 22 today. So if you have your Bibles, open Revelation 21 and 22. Last time we met together, we looked at 19 and 20, and we saw that there was a magnificent meal, the wedding feast of the Lamb. We saw the return of Christ and the massacre that would happen as Jesus destroys all the enemies and the Antichrist and the beast are thrown into the pit. We've seen Satan bound in a millennium come about and the destruction of Satan. And we've seen the final judgment and then the rewards. And now we're coming to chapters 21 and 22, the end of the book of Revelation. And it ends with an incredibly encouraging a message for all of us who are here today. Now, we see that those things are going to be a reality, but we don't really know when they're going to happen. Until that time, we need to understand that there are two things that we are living between in these days. As believers, there are two things we're living between. Number one, we are living between two worlds as believers right now. You and I are kind of in the in-between place. First of all, we are temporal citizens of an earthly kingdom. This is where we are today. We're temporal citizens of an earthly kingdom. That means this, that you and I don't belong here. We're passing through. This is not our home. Now, that doesn't mean that we're to live our lives on earth with some kind of divine passivity. Let go and let God. God's sovereign. I don't have to do anything. No, the scriptures are replete by telling us that we are to be good citizens. We are to be good citizens where we live. We are to participate in righteousness. We are to participate in ushering righteousness into our 
country, wherever it is that we live. And for us, we do that. We vote. We have a responsibility to vote and vote on issues that usher in righteousness. We serve. We love. We don't live with a divine passivity. We are to live faithfully as soldiers of Christ and ambassadors of Jesus in this world that people might come to know the good news of the gospel of Jesus. But we're passing through. We're living in a temporal world in an earthly kingdom. But secondly, we are eternal citizens of a heavenly kingdom. That while this is in our home, we are living for eternity. Every moment of our lives, every thought of our minds, every passion of our souls should be for eternity. We are living today, but we are living for that day. And that day where we get to be with God face to face. Now, you've heard the saying that some people have used before, that that person is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And I've heard people say that. Well, actually, the opposite is true. We are to be so heavenly minded that we are good for the things of the earth. Last week, Garrett um, Burns brought an incredible message on the difference between committing to the Savior and our appetites, and he quoted C.S. Lewis. He didn't know that I was going to use that quote today, and he used a little bit of it, but I'm going to use a lot of it. And here's what C.S. Lewis says about that mindset. He says, a continuing looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. You see, we are to be thinking of that world to come because we don't live for right now. We are living for eternity. So we're stuck kind of between these two worlds. But there's a second thing we're between. We're living between two times as believers. There are two different times that we're living between. And we see that we're living between the birth of Christ and Jesus' return. All of history focuses on this point. The past looks to the birth of Christ the present and the future looks back to the birth of Christ. But we're also looking to his return. And we're somewhere in here. And what theologians say is we're living in the already but not yet. That's where we are. And so as we're stuck between these two things, we're living for one purpose. We're living for the purpose of the glory of God. And the greatest way God's glory is revealed is in the culmination of his kingdom. The reality that all of history is going to be rolled up in a scroll. The reality that all of history is coming to an end. And the ultimate culmination of all of that is the kingdom of God. Now, when we talk about kingdoms, there are always three essential parts of a kingdom. Without these three essentials, you won't have a kingdom. Let me give you the three essentials of a kingdom. Number one, there's always people. A kingdom has people. You cannot have a kingdom without subjects. 
And so people are always part of a kingdom. Secondly, there's a place. A kingdom has a place. There's a place of dominion. There's a place of control. There's a place of being. Thirdly, there's the presence of the king. There's the presence of the king. You can't have a kingdom without the presence of a king. And so if you're going to have a kingdom, there's a people, there's a place, there's his presence. All through the scriptures, we find these elements of the kingdom of God. Let's go all the way back to Genesis. When you go back to the very beginning of Genesis, you find these three things. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into him his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God created a people. And then he created Eve in Genesis chapter 2. So God creates a people. And what does he do? And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. He created a place. There's a people, there's a place. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And God was there. So in the very beginning, there's a people. There's a place. And there's the presence of Almighty God. But Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against the king. And what did they lose? They lost their place, and they lost being in the presence of Almighty God. They didn't lose the fact that they were his people created in his image. His image is now defaced within them. And so what happens is we see the kingdom being distorted. But all through the rest of Scripture, God is working again to bring his people into his presence. When the people are delivered from Egypt, and they're in the wilderness. God instructs them to build a tabernacle. And here are his people surrounded around the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, God creates a holy place. In Exodus chapter 26, he says, And you shall have a veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. It was a cube-shaped room where God would meet with his people. You have people. You have a place. You have the presence of God. And only the high priest could go into that holy of holies once a year. And then later you see the temple being built by Solomon and then eventually by Herod. And it was the same setup. There was the people of God surrounding it. There was a place where they met in the Holy of Holies where God met with them in his presence. So the kingdom always has people, a place, and a presence. Now we come to heaven. You say, what does all this have to do with heaven? This is so important. Many people think that heaven is this ethereal place where all these disembodied spirits are going from cloud to cloud. We're surfing clouds. We're hopping clouds. We're playing harps. We're doing nothing. Basically, it's an eternity of nothingness and no specific purpose. Many people think of heaven in those terms. But it's not. Heaven is God's kingdom being culminated in his presence. And when we talk about heaven, it involves the same three essentials when it comes to eternity with God. First of all, heaven is made up of real people. Heaven is made up of real people. These are people who have lived and who have served God. We see in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And then when you look at verses 24 and 27 of that same chapter, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Heaven is made up of real people. I want to show you the three kinds of real people that are there. When we come to heaven, for number one is this. These are redeemed people. It says, these are the people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. These are the people who have had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. These are the people who have surrendered their lives to him as Lord and Savior. These are the ones who have been born again by the Spirit of God. Listen, heaven will only consist of redeemed people. Sinners will not be there. Everybody wants to go to heaven. You know that? But not everybody wants to submit to the king of heaven. And the only way that you can enter into heaven is to have a relationship with the king himself. And if you have been redeemed by the spirit of God, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you will be one of the redeemed of heaven. What does that mean? That means, listen, no more sin ever. No more temptation ever. No more propensities to fallen state of our sinfulness ever. No more anger ever. No more jealousy ever. No more shame no more embarrassment. No more, oh, I hope no one saw that. Ever. It's going to be a place of people who have been redeemed. And listen to this. This is so important. Satan does not appear in the first two chapters of the Bible. Neither does he appear in the last two chapters of the Bible because he is no more. And there is no threat from him. The scripture says and that the gates are left open. Why? Nobody's coming. Because we are the redeemed of God. And the redeemed of God means we can live in a life that, the, that where the imputed righteousness of Jesus has been given to us here. It is a reality in heaven. And we will be as holy and as pure as he is. We're going to be redeemed people. But the second thing is this. We're going to be resurrected people. We're going to be people with a body like the Lord Jesus had. We're going to be resurrected. We're going to have a perfect body. We're not going to just be spirits floating around with a robe draped over us. We're going to be able to eat. We're sitting at the wedding feast of the Lamb. What are we doing? We're eating. We're going to be able to eat the finest of foods and never gain an ounce. Hallelujah. Can't wait for that day. We're going to be able to enjoy the greatest things with these bodies. No more pain. No more hurting. No more aches. 
No more feeling that your body is falling apart. I'm 62 now. I was playing with my grandchildren on Thanksgiving Day, skateboarding. After that day, I couldn't walk. <laughs> and I'm so ready to be having that perfect body that there will never be any deformities the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame, all of their limbs will be restored. Somebody asked, how old will we be in heaven? How old will we be? Will old men remain old men? Will young women remain young women? Some scholars say we, they believe that we'll all be the age of Jesus, 33. For those of us who are older, that's a great thing. Those of you in your 20s, you ain't looking forward to that. But it'll be perfect. There will be no crying, no pain, no suffering, no shame. Perfect resurrected bodies, real people who have been redeemed with real bodies. We'll be able to touch, we'll be able to hug, we'll be able to high five, we'll be able to celebrate in a real way that we've never experienced before. Here's the third thing. They're restored people. They're restored people. Here's what's really interesting. Verse 3, he says, and they shall be his people. It's literally in the Greek, plural, peoples. They shall be his peoples, which speaks of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And here's what doesn't happen in heaven. When we get to heaven, it's not that we're all one race. No, God loves diversity. He's created us with diversity. Look at the person sitting next to you. So what we see is that all of us, every tribe, every tongue, every nation that has proclaimed Christ as Lord and Savior will be there. And they will have their skin color. They will have their heritage. They will have their traditions. Can you imagine what it would be like in heaven? That people are restored to one people, even in the midst of the diversity and the differences? There will be no racism in heaven. There will be no elitism in heaven. There will be no suspicion of one another in heaven. We will be absolutely restored. Somebody said, what, what language will we speak? I believe we'll speak all languages. We will understand all languages. Because John says, we will know as we are known. And it's going to be a beautiful place where all of humanity has been consummated together through the ages under the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's absolute Unity with real people who will be together for all of eternity. So get out of your mind that we're just going to be these spirit bodies floating around. You're going to have the perfect body, hopefully all at 33 years of age, together for eternity. It's real people. But here's the second thing about heaven. Heaven and earth are physical places. They are real places of existence. Matter of fact, John paints this picture for us in chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And you see this picture of a new heaven and a new earth. 
Many people think that the old earth is just going to be totally obliterated, destroyed, and it won't exist anymore. It's kind of the thought that Jesus has just conceded the earth to the enemy. Jesus concedes nothing he owns to the enemy. Is it going to be a new heaven and a new earth with a new construction? Will it be refined by fire? Will it be something that's going to be adjusted? We don't really know. But it's physical. It's real. And both of these places are real. And then John has this vision a little bit later, verses 10 through 11. Listen to what he says. And he carried me away to the, uh, in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And on the, tw- on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square in its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, Its length and width and height are equal. In other words, it is a perfect cube. And then it says he also measured its wall with 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while like the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall and the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald. The fifth onyx, the sixth cornelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And then you get to chapter 22, and he paints a picture, not only of a new heaven and a new earth, of a new city, but he paints a picture now of a new garden. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the street and of the city. Also on either side, the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We begin in a garden, we end in a garden. And here's the picture. These are real structures. These are physical, material things. This is a real place where we will live. And it's shaped as a cube. But there are two things we need to understand from this. The tree of life is there, which means this, that in heaven we will more fully be alive than we can ever imagine. We have the promise of life now. Jesus says in his earthly ministry, I've come that they might have life and have it what? abundantly. But let's be honest, it is really hard to live that kind of an abundant life with a broken world. It's that hard to live that kind of abundant life with a sinful nature, with the temptations and the flaws and the inadequacies of our own lives. It is really hard for us to say, yes, we are living that abundant life. But when we get to heaven, the kind of life that God really wanted us to live will be available there that we can't even describe. And here's the other thing. The indescribable beauty of heaven pales in comparison to anything we see on earth. And I want you to know, we live in the most beautiful place, don't we? We live on the coast of North Carolina. 
You can wake up every single morning and you can see some of the most beautiful sunrises that you have ever seen. Now, some of you have never seen it because the sun comes up before 10 a.m. Get up early and try it. And we might look at it and say, wow, how beautiful is that sunrise? Or you go to a place where there's an incredible sunset and you watch it go down. You say, I've never seen this thing is more beautiful. Or you go to the Rockies or you go to the Smokies or you go to the mountains of North Carolina. Wherever you go, it doesn't matter. You see the beauty of the earth. And let me tell you, all of this pales in comparison to what's in heaven. And listen carefully. God is not trying to match heaven with the beauties of earth. Because the things on earth are just a foreshadow of how beautiful heaven is. It's a real place where we will be with real people. Isn't it amazing the things that we consider to be so precious on this earth like gold will be the pavement that we walk on? And we can't even imagine. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get in your mind this thought. Wow, what a beautiful sunrise. But it's not nearly as beautiful as heaven's going to be. What a beautiful, majestic mountain peak but it pales into comparison of what heaven's going to be. What a beautiful prairie and landscape. It pales into comparison what heaven will be. We should look at all of the things on earth as children of God and the beauty that God has given us as nothing but a foretaste of the real beauty that is to come. Because we will not be able to believe our very eyes when we see the glory of what God has for his people. Real people in a real place. And here comes the third part of the kingdom. Heaven includes the presence of God. Here's the most significant. Heaven includes the presence of God. Listen carefully. The reward of heaven is not a crown. The reward of heaven is not eternal life. The reward of heaven is not a position. The reward of heaven is Jesus, his presence forever. Revelation 21.3, here's what he says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You know what the word dwelling place means? That word dwelling literally means tabernacle. God is going to tabernacle with us. He is going to pitch his tent with us. And we are going to be with him. He will be our God for all of eternity. The God of the universe, the one who's created everything, we're going to be in his presence. We're going to be with him. And how wonderful is that going to be? He tells us in chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You want to know why there's no temple? When we just talked about the description of heaven, we said it's a perfect cube. What is the Holy of Holies? a perfect cube, and we're going to be forever in the holy of holies. 
In the Old Testament, only the high priest could enter into there once a year. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, the veil of the temple separating the holy of holies to mankind was torn, which says we have access. Because of Jesus Christ today, we have access to the presence of God. But listen, we are looking in from the outside right now. We are looking into what will be. But on that day, we're going to be standing in the very holy of holies. All of heaven is the shape of a cube because we are forever in his presence. Forever. Now, as wonderful as that is, there are five words that John shares that I believe are the greatest five words in all the New Testament. And it's found, chapter 22, verse 4. They will see his face. The redeemed people of God will see his face. Remember, in the Old Testament, no one could look at God and live. Moses could only see the backside of God because he could not stand the glory of God. But with these resurrected bodies and imputed righteousness of Christ being a reality, we will be able to stand before God face to face. We will see the face of the creator of our souls. We will see the face of the Holy Spirit who has lived within us. We will see the face of our Savior face to face. Fanny Crosby was a great hymn writer, and she wrote hundreds of hymns during her lifetime. But she was blind her entire life, could never see a human face. In one of her hymns, she wrote these words, when my life work has ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side and his smile will be the first to welcome me. The very first face that Fanny Crosby has ever seen was the Lord Jesus, face to face. Let me tell you what we won't see. When we stand into heaven for eternity and we see the face of Jesus, here's what we're not going to see. We're not going to see him look at us with an eye row. You're here. You won't see that. You won't see sadness in his eyes and a rebuke. I can't believe you did that. Don't you know what I've done for you? How could you lack such faith? You won't see that. You won't get a lecture from Jesus. Now, you know, I gave you the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and yet you continue to struggle. You won't see any of that. What you will see is His joy. What you will see is that smile and the eyes light up. What we will experience will be an embrace. And what we will hear will be, well done. Now let's be honest. 
I don't feel well done. Do you? I know the propensities of my own heart to wonder. I know my own slowness to coming to obedience. I know the own temptations that I struggle with. I know that I should be much further spiritually now than I am. I know I have grieved his heart. I know I've disobeyed his word. I know by the standard of holiness, I have let him down. But on that day, he will say, well done. Because it's not based on my performance. It's based on what he did for me on the cross. And his work is what sustains me. And because of that, I live every day for that day. I live every moment for that moment. And I look forward to the time when all of humanity will be culminized in the kingdom of God. And I will be with him. And he is the treasure. He is the one that I live for. John closes with two magnificent truths. And here they are. Number one, there's a great declaration. And here's the declaration. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. Then in verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then in verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Listen, he's coming. And he's coming soon. And you and I can absolutely rest in the confidence that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is coming back for his bride. And the early church lived for two days, for today and for that day. And we, as a people of God, in the body of Christ at Scottsdale, are to live today for his glory and for that day when we see him face to face. And life will be more life than we have ever known. Saint of God, listen to me carefully. Listen. Do not quit the fight. Endure to the end. Do not coast into eternity. Live every single day for the glory of Jesus. Live every single day with the anticipation that he is coming back. Live every single day with the absolute expectant hope and the certainty that you will stand before your Savior. And rather than condemnation, you will be welcomed with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb for all of eternity. Live for that day. Here's the second part of it. He gives a personal invitation. Here's what I love about the Lord Jesus. Even at the end of the book, he gives an invitation. 
All through it, there are opportunities for men and women, boys and girls, to come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here he concludes it with this. John says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. There's an invitation here for those who don't know Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, the Spirit says, come. Who is that? That's a capital S, isn't it? The Holy Spirit of God. And some of you have been through this series, and the Holy Spirit has been dealing with your heart. He's been convicting you, and there's a warming in your soul, and you can't explain it. And yet, all of a sudden, you know that God is drawing you to himself, and the Spirit of God is saying to you, come. Come to Jesus. Come sit at the table. I've got a place for you. Let me pull the chair out. You come and experience the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Then he says, the bride says, come. Who's the bride? We're the bride. The church is the bride. An unbeliever, just as the Holy Spirit is calling you to come, this, this bride, this church is saying to you, would you come? Would you come? Would you come with us on this journey of forgiveness and redemption? Would you come and experience eternal life through Jesus Christ? Would you come and sit at the table with us? Would you come and adore him? Even in this moment, the Spirit of God is saying to you to come. Listen carefully. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never surrendered your life to Him, but you know God is doing something in your heart, and He has been pulling you closer and closer and closer, and now the Spirit of God is speaking directly to you, and we as the body of Christ are speaking directly to you and inviting you to come into a relationship with Christ this morning. Would you surrender? Would you surrender? Would you throw up the white flag of your own soul and say, I'm not going to resist anymore. I surrender to the king. And I want to be with his people. And I want to be in a place. And I want to be with him forever. Would you surrender? I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. This is what we call an old-fashioned invitation this morning. I want every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around. If this morning you've never surrendered your life to Christ, but the Spirit of God has been dealing with you, and you are willing to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus right now, I want you to pray this prayer to yourself. Not out loud. Pray it to yourself. Just say, Dear God, I know I am a sinner. And I know that my sin has separated me from you. And I believe that if I die today without Christ, that I will spend eternity in hell apart from you. But I believe Jesus is your son. I believe he died on a cross and he rose from the dead and he is alive today. And right now I surrender my life to you. I give you my past. I give you my present. I give you my future. I ask you to be the king of my life. I turn from my sins and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for giving me eternal life. 
with every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. If you've never prayed that prayer, but you've prayed it this morning and you meant it, you meant it. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way, but if you meant it, would you just raise your hand? Say this morning, I've surrendered my life to him. Amen. Amen. Father, for those who have raised their hands this morning, I pray that your spirit does a work in them that is so evident and that their love for the Lord Jesus grows more and more and more. Father, I thank you that we have heard the truth of your word and now, Father, we can just sit and adore you and to worship you because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by this message and you now have a desire to follow Christ or you just want to learn more about our church, I encourage you to go to scottshill.org slash next steps so that we can follow up with you. Also, if you were blessed by this message, I encourage you to share it with your friends and family on social media. God bless.